Welcome to the J2 Hub podcast, where we focus on everything from property development, hot entrepreneurially business topics, and real-life scenarios facing business owners just like you and I. Brought to you by James Sahota, we bring you exciting real-life property, business and entrepreneurially related hot topics, and that little bit more. Welcome everybody to another episode of the J2 Hub podcast on this sunny Tuesday morning here in London town. Uh, today I'm very, very excited because I'm joined by a chap who I describe as you either love him or you hate him. He's got a no bullshit approach and I love how everything he talks about is very, very factual. Um, he's helped me a lot myself where he's assessed a site for me and uh, you know gave me a very honest opinion, whereas in the past I've had... Um, some kind of not so honest opinions where people have just tried to charge me a fee for work and try to get the job in. Um, so I wanted to get this guy onto the podcast because I feel there was a lot of value I got from just joining him on a few webinars and picking up some few kind of tips and tricks. And I've connected with some really, really good people from just spending a couple of hours on a webinar of an evening with this chap. So lo and behold, I'm joined by John McDermott, a chartered town planner from Town Planning Expert. Thank you very much, John, for joining me. Uh, you're most welcome, James. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much, John. Yeah, John, like I said, I said I describe you as Marmite. You either love you or you hate you. For me, I love what you do and I love what you put out there. So I'm a big fan of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good to hear. That That's good to hear. I mean, we don't do it to, to upset anyone. We just do it to to put out what we believe is the right advice for the right side at the right time. And if people don't like the answer that they get, okay, at least we've given them what we believe to be the correct advice. Mm -hmm. So, John, I know who you are. I've been following you for a while. We spoke a few times. Just for the listeners out there in the audience that don't know who you are, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, not a problem. So, um, I'm John McDermott. I'm a chartered town planner. Uh, I've got some weird initials after my name. In fact, I've got many weird initials after my name now. And I've been a practicing planner for uh, is it 18 years. It is 18 years now. It's getting wow. ridiculous. Um, the uh, practice I run is called Town Planning Expert. It's part of a multidisciplinary group that deals with uh, planning, development, and education. We're always planners first. Planners, planning is our primary business. That's our bread and butter, what we do as our day jobs. And the other stuff is fun. Um, so we deal with a whole range of, of work up and down the country. I've got something like 45, 46 applications on at the moment in a variety of locations. We also do property development ourselves. We've got three property development sites running through the planning system at the moment uh, with our two property development companies. And we're educators in our spare time. So we have uh, interaction with uh, aspiring property developers and existing property developers wanting to know more about the planning system uh, through our educational activities. Let's call them activities. It's, it's not really a business. It's, it's fun. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. John, am I right in saying the letters that you have are a BA, MA, MRTPI, and a CXO? <laughs> yes, yeah, CXO <laughs> is Chief Executive <laughs> Officer. Um, 
yeah, BA, Bachelor of, uh, BSc to be fair, Bachelor of Science, Master of Arts, uh, member of the Royal Town Planning Institute, which makes me a chartered town planner. Fantastic. I only got one of them wrong then. I did do a little bit of research and I thought, you know what, I better find out who this chap is, although I know you. I just thought, let me do a little background. Do a little John, hunting. You, <laughs> John, you mentioned in there that you um, planning is number one for you and you know education comes second, your planner's number one. Um, I've recently seen, well, not recently, I mean, going back a few months now, you're always, you always seem to be in the YPN writing quite a few articles in there or you're featured in there or you're talked about in there quite a lot. I'm uh, luckily for me, YPN uh, a few uh, years ago approached me to take over from Linda Wright as their resident town planner, um, their resident columnist on planning issues. So periodically I I get an email from, from Jane um, at YPN, Jane's the editor um, saying, John, would you mind awfully putting together an article on this or that or the other, or I submit articles on, on, on interest pieces. So, yeah, I, I, I'm quite honoured that YPN dropped me an email that day and, and said, would you mind awfully taking over from, from Linda Wright, who is in herself a, an exceedingly good town planner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, think, I think the YPN magazine is a fantastic magazine. Um, everyone I speak to absolutely loves it. And, you know, it seems to be the same consensus every month when that drops on, on people's doormats. It's like, woohoo, you know it's going to be packed with loads mm. of information from a variety of sources. Is it something that takes up a lot of your time or is it something you um, quite enjoy doing? It's something I find time for. So okay. when I'm, and, and normally, to be fair, I, I get asked to do it when I'm either doing some educational piece anyway or I'm away from the office. So it gives me something to do, forgive me, it gives me something to do when I'm either sitting on a plane or sitting in a hotel lounge by myself before an education event so actually it's, it's quite a nice uh, brain teaser as it were to to, to work through uh, when i'm writing those fantastic puts you to the test does it uh, yeah but it's good cpd for me as well if, if it's something i don't know intimately i have to go and research it all of all of the articles that i i try and write for ypn are incredible are, are very detailed researched and because there's a lot that goes into them, it's good CPD for me. It's good continued professional development for me to, to go and do. I have to do continued professional development as a chartered town planner. I have to be constantly learning. I have to do 24 hours every two years and log it. So wow. it's, um, it's a requirement of the status that I've got. Wow. So not only are you educating, but you're educating yourself as well. All the time. otherwise you just um you just stagnate you're doing the same old developments or or you're using the same old tricks and and those tricks don't last forever they 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 change um the, the types of development you can get away with changes policies change law changes and you have to keep up to speed with it all and that's part of what we do fantastic uh John, so I want to talk about planning. Now, some of the buzzwords that fly around, planning permission, permitted development, green belt land, brown belt land, planning uplift. As a professional in this field, can you give us a little bit of insight into those different areas and those terms that always seem to pop up? Okay, so let's, let's start with the, the most commonly talked about one, which is permitted development. I think permitted development has had one of these 
Renaissance is that uh, in reality, no one anticipated coming, but it's happened. The idea behind permitted development is this, this is development with a deemed planning permission. It's development that has a planning permission by virtue of a general permitted development order, a piece of a piece of work produced by the government that says, right, we are giving planning permission to certain forms of development. We don't need the council to look at it or look at it in the same way. It's a buzzword because it's always seen as the easy option. So it's seen as the easy way out. This is how I get one over on the council. It's not always the best form of development. It's like, think of it as the lowest common denominator. It is the minimum development that the government deemed to be acceptable in any given circumstance because it's written for everywhere in England. Um, It's not written for just a site in central London or a site in Greater Manchester. It's, It's written for everywhere in England. So it's seen as the lowest common denominator. So whilst permitted development can yield some interesting results, it also can yield some very... Uh, contrived answers to a question that could have been answered quite happily by putting a planning application in. So I think when thinking about permitted development, you must always consider what is the best form of development I can get on this site and can I achieve this a different way? Can I achieve this through a planning application or or something else? Gotcha. So it shouldn't always be about you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do it because you might actually get something a lot better if you were to put through a full planning application? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you, you could do something 10 times better, 10 times more interesting um, with a full planning application than you could under permitted development because permitted development has its limitations, it has its restrictions, it has its breaks. And the brand new permitted development right that we saw uh, late last month uh, for the new part 20, which is flats above flats, is one of the most restricted permitted development rights I've ever seen in my career. And I keep on saying that to people, and, like, and the question is why? You just have to read it. You know, There's limitations on floor-to-ceiling heights, limitations on total height of building, limitations on what you can do inside and outside of the building, limitations on growth of a building. It's properly locked down almost mm-hmm. as if they were looking at a building and writing a permitted development right for that building. Here's an interesting nuance in that particular permitted development right. Um, there are certain buildings that you're going to find difficult to make work with that right because it allows for the replacement of lift plant and machinery on the roof, right? Over four stories, under the Equalities Act, you need a lift inside a building. So if you've got a three-story building that doesn't have a lift in at the moment and you want to add two stories to that three-story building, that would take that building to five stories. The Equalities Act will bang in and will require you to get a lift inside that building somewhere. So it naturally limits certain building typologies by, by taking away a right that exists for other building typologies within the same clause. So it's a very, very cleverly worded, mm-hmm. very cleverly worded um, permitted development right. But you might achieve the same or better outcome 
if you were to make a planning application. So if you needed to knock that building down and build a building back that was five stories, you'll have to do that through a planning permission, but you'll get a better form of development out of it. You'll, you'll get a better design building. You'll be made to get a better design building. You'll be able to put the lift in. You'll be able to get all the service runs to work properly. You won't be so compromised as you are with PD. Yeah, just something you said there, like they'd chuck a you know a closet you that you've got to put a lift in it if you're going to five stories. I'm just trying to think in my head, if you've already got a building that's part three stories built, where the hell does the lift go? You know, what exactly. are you taking away? Is it you know, surely you're having to take a chunk of the building out to get that in? Well, that's that's exactly it. And you're having to find space in the loft roof void in order to get that to work. You're having to find space um, on the ground floor and all the floors above in order to get that to work. It does raise into question who or what type of building is this permitted development right targeted at. I've, I've postulated that it's, it's those 1950s, 60s and 70s buildings that you do find in central London that are between four and eight stories in height that are targeted by this permitted development right because those are the buildings that have the lift machinery shop on the, on the roof, which are allowed to extend upwards. They have a lift running through the building and they're the right starting height and right ending height for the permitted development right to be used. Okay, okay, I get you. So, John, you mentioned permitted development there. So could you talk us through what a full planning application would be like then on the other flip note? So a full planning application is exactly what it is. It's, it's the submission of full plans and particulars, a designer access statement and any other statements you need in order to... Uh, allow the council to determine whether or not they should be giving planning permission. The benefit of doing the full planning permission is if you apply policy, if you simply just apply the rules, and we live in a rules-based society, so it seems almost perverse that, that we don't simply just apply some rules in order to get planning permission. So if you apply some rules and the rules are found in the local plan, then you get planning permission. It's, it's really is as bare bones as that. Yes, it costs a bit more. Yes, it, it, um, it takes some time. And that is getting worse with COVID-19, not better. But the result you get is fundamentally better because you're held to a higher standard. So what do we mean by that? The design of the building will be better, fundamentally. The... Um, floor layout will be better because you won't be putting in micro flats that are sub 37 square meters. You'll be held to a decent quality of accommodation through the building, things like that. No, that's uh, that's really insightful. Um, people always seem to think there's some kind of magic formula to get your building through planning or you've got to know someone. And something you just said there, John, you know, we live in a society of rules and if you follow the rules, uh, and it's in the planning guide, then nine times out of 10, you're likely to get it. I mean, I, I recently or last year built a new build house. There's only a one bedroom house, like two stories in the tightest portion of land you can yeah. ever imagine between two gardens. Now, I bought the land off a chap who had it for 12 years and he kept getting planning refusal, kept getting planning refusal. I looked at it and I did, you know, I'm no expert, not like yourself. I mean, I looked at it and I did a quick little review of it. And I thought, this guy is not, doing what the council's asking him to do he's not following the rules he's not doing exactly they're even giving him advice on how to get this through but he's still being argumentative being pushy and trying to get a two-bedroom building out of this when they told him categorically no it's not going to happen so we ended up purchasing this land off of him because he got bloody frustrated 
Six months later, we followed over rules. We we got a um, uh, council planner involved who came and done a pre-app for us. We sat down, had a cup of coffee with them, went through everything they wanted, delivered exactly what they wanted, and, and we got planning permission six months later. And this guy, still to this day, seems to think that we'd done him over somehow by reading something. <laughs> There's no magic. Uh, people, people refer to me as a wizard. I'm not. Um, planners are like librarians. We read law, we read practice guides, and we read policy. That's what we do. And... If you follow the rules, you get what you want. If you follow the rules, you get planning permission. And that is the ultimate goal to all of this. We call it policy compliance. The alternative, sadly, is where you have, and this is where some people don't like me, to be fair, because I accuse them of pushing a site. The idea behind pushing a site is that you need to put too much on the site. You need to go beyond the pale. So take your example of, of the guy that probably had done his numbers and looked at it and gone, I need the second bedroom in order to get my values up because I don't think I can build for whatever I can build in order to make the, the deal stack up. So he had to have the second bedroom in his, in his head based on his analysis. That would be pushing a site. So that would be pushing a site beyond its ability to accept. Now, we see this all the time, sadly. We see a lot of developments trying to push beyond the pale. So try to push beyond what a site can readily accept. And what you get is a very compromised scheme as a result. Um, and, but but the, the formula insofar as to get planning permission, if you want to get planning permission easily, simply, most straightforward manner, follow the rules. It's a plan-led system. The plan includes the rules within it, the policies, what will and will not be granted planning permission, you follow the rules and you get the answer. Mm -hmm. John, if someone's not happy with the decision they get from a planner and they send it through to an appeal, I mean, how likely is someone to get a positive outcome at appeal? If, if Very, they very low. Very low. Uh, the national average at appeal, or all modes, all modes of appeal, currently stands at about 30%. Wow. That's your, that's your chance of success. You should only use an appeal as a last resort. Okay. So your advice would be adjust the scheme or adjust whatever you Change submit. Something. Exactly. Right. Change something. Change, figure out what's wrong and change it. If you're unacceptable in principle, so if, you're, if the council is basically saying, well, hang on a minute, we've got a policy. Let's take Greenbelt, for example, which is the classic one. There are only very, very few circumstances where you can build in a Greenbelt. And those are set nationally in law in the NPPF. Uh, NPPF is National Planning Policy Framework. Um, a council will quite happily and easily refuse you. And by quite happily and easily, I mean bloody quick, uh, refuse you if you fail uh, to meet any of those exemptable criteria because the starting proposition, the, the whole ethos behind the application in the first place was so fundamentally flawed because you didn't have one of those criteria and you don't have a very special circumstance, a very special reason, or you don't have um, any other justifiable reason in order to exempt yourself from Greenbelt policy. So that would be considered unacceptable in principle. Um, we see a lot of those going before the inspector. It's one of those things that is legislative, uh, that is um, very legit legit 
it goes to the courts a lot, right? Okay. And the court normally revolves around the same argument. Was there a very special reason, very special circumstance, by which the Greenbelt, which is this area of land protected beyond anything else, should be developed upon? And there are so few examples of where that can actually work that most of them fail even in the high court. So it's one of those things that if you follow the rules, you get your consent. If you choose to push or you choose to ignore the rules, um, then you're going to find yourself at the burden of a refusal first time out. Mm -hmm. John, do you find a lot of people get emotions involved in planning and when they don't get what they want, they emotionally get upset and they're like, no, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to push it. Whereas they should just be looking at clear cut facts. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, The... The, the um, commonality is uh, falls to the um, old adage of every Englishman's home is his castle or every Englishwoman's home is his castle. You get very upset. And I can understand completely why uh, people get very upset when, when you buy a piece of land or, or, you, or you work on a piece of land and you're told by a planning authority, no, we don't want you to do this because it's effectively personality versus personality. And we, and, and we Englishers, we don't like, or Britishers, we don't like being told no, do we? We're not very good at the no answer. So we tend to fight back. Um, very recently, I've been using a, a quote from, if you know the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Jack Sparrow says, we must now fight to run away. And... I've been using that a lot recently because we're starting to see a lot of this. Do I carry on? Do I carry on? Do I carry on? Um, And that's where applicants essentially chew through an application for so long. Mm -hmm. It's in planning so long that the benefit of that planning application has now been eroded to near zero, either by bridging costs or, or other costs or interest they're paying or whatever. So, it is a difficult thing for someone to accept no as an answer. And we are naturally geared, I think, to fight against that. But sometimes we do have to take no as the answer. Because if, mm-hmm. if the answer is no, then, and, and it's no through the inspector and no through the high court, then where does that leave you? I'm always reminded of a, a case in, in um, Rygate and Banstead Council, the very famous Mr. Fiddler who built a house inside a hay bale. He didn't just build oh, a yeah. house. He, he built a castle. <laughs> he had 20 years of no's. So he applied, he appealed, he challenged, he took it to the Supreme Court in the UK, he took it to the European Court, he took it to the Court of Human Rights, he took it everywhere, right? He had 20 years, he ended up getting time um, at Her Majesty's pleasure for contempt of court on several occasions and his one he even wrote to the queen because one of the very rare and seldom used uh, provisions the queen has in law is if she names a castle as one of her permanent residences as one of her residences then it becomes exempt from planning whatever <laughs> that building is a very old exemption and uh, he went there and the Queen kindly uh, 
refused <laughs> to name his very, very small five-bedroom castle in the Greenbelt um, as, a, as, a, as one of her personal residences. And it was eventually demolished by Rygate and Banstead uh, a couple of years ago. Wow. I, I remember he, seeing he that. He to take it down, to be fair. And that the council had to do direct action and roll the bulldozers in. Wow. Just goes to show what extent the council will go to. I mean, I remember seeing that chap on the television and thinking, is this guy absolutely nuts? You know, he's got this massive hay bale going right round it and he's building this. It, it's not something small. It was a substantial house that he put together. And, you know, as someone in property myself, I think, is he really prepared to take the risk of putting all that money into this, not knowing that it's going to actually stand or it might be torn down? But fair due to the guy. He put up a good fight. He, he took it everywhere he possibly could. But that, that's a good example of at some point in time, his, his advisors should be saying, no, you must fight to run away. At some point in time, you're going to find yourself in contempt of court, which is the ultimate punishment for someone who breaches planning control. And that's a statutory sentence. So... He now does have a criminal record on his books um, as a result of fighting that much. But that's a good example of, of someone who uh, didn't want to take the no. Wow. Serious emotions involved then, then, eh? Mm, absolutely. John, I wanted to ask you, um, Greenbelt Land, Brownbelt Land and Planning Uplift, could you briefly touch on those for us? So Greenland or, or Greenfield Land or Greenbelt Land, I mean, the there are two different connotations in there. So green field land or what planners call open countryside is non-previously developed land. It's stuff that hasn't been built on before is used for agriculture outside of settlement boundary. So those are areas which are um, unacceptable in principle for uh, development. You're not supposed to build on, on areas of green space. You're supposed to look at the brown space first. Green belt land, and we've touched briefly upon it already, is an area of land with additional levels of protection on it. So whilst on greenfield land, there are forms of development that are named that are acceptable. So you can do agriculture, you can do forestry, you can subdivide houses, you can, you can do things like that. You can build new houses if you can justify it. On green belt land, that is wholly unacceptable in principle. You, you can't go and do things like that. Um, so it's different levels of control there. What the government will want to point you to is brownfield land development. And brownfield land is rebuilding existing buildings, rebuild, rebuilding on existing previously developed land, normally in designated towns or cities or settlements. There, development is acceptable in principle. So the test flips. So we go from a position of no what's the next question, to yes, how many and what do you want, right? And, and that's where the government, through planning policy and practice, is trying to focus the rules-based system into where it wants to see development in the future. Planning has always been used a little bit as social engineering or, or, or human geography engineering, certainly. And that's where the government uses these definitions to guide and direct developers as to where it does and does not want to see development. Notwithstanding the fact that there are always those who try to push. <laughs> yeah. And planning uplift, John? 
Planning uplift is a, is a weird concept because it's the idea that a planning application has a value, right? That you go and get planning permission and then you ascribe a value to that planning permission and then you sell the site with that additional value add, right? How that value is calculated tends to be down to the individual in question. It does, tends to be very much down to who is doing that calculation. We've seen some planning uplift calculations, and there are a lot floating around, that bound around the, the third concept. So a, site of, a piece of land with planning permission is worth a third of the GDP. Mm-hmm. Probably not worth a third of the GDP, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. fair, because that leaves precious little to actually be able to build and get a profit out of it. Uh, but that's what planning uplift is. It's the idea that uh, a value is added when a planning permission is granted for the piece of land. Mm-hmm. And you, from your experience, do you find people actually use this as a strategy to make money for themselves? Um, yes, used by speculative developers all the time, typically on greenfield sites where they use outline planning permission um, to gain a foothold. So they use outline planning permission to grow the edge of a settlement out Mm -hmm. um, on specific sites where they've got a long option or a lease option or, or they bought the land at a very low price. And then they try and use that outline planning permission as the uplift lever, essentially, to sell on to a major house builder for effectively what the value would be if it had a full planning permission for the same thing. Right, gotcha. So used all the time, used by speculators, starting to be used by deal sources, to be fair, as well. Now we've got the permission in principle um, pretty much working across the country. So, yeah, it's it's very much... uh, uh, a strategy used by those who who don't want to get their hands dirty and get the and get the buildings built, but want to do flips, uh, land-based flips, taking a piece of land, getting a permission on it, and then selling that one out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you only have to jump onto Rightmove and have a look at land for sale around London, and bits that don't have planning is substantially lower than bits that do. And like you said, that third model just doesn't seem to work because you look at these things and you think, what you want X amount for this land. And by the time I build it, it the numbers just don't stack. It, it just doesn't work at all, you know. Where are you yeah. getting this value from? Are you just putting your finger in the air and thinking, oh, you know what, I'll charge 400 grand for that. Someone will pay it. It's even worse elsewhere in the country. We were looking at a development site over the weekend that we were very excited about down in Cornwall. And it had outline planning permission for eight fully detached houses, lovely, in a lovely little village, stunning, within a mile of the coast, fabulous, that means we can aim at London pricing because Cornwall's weird. Mile from the coast, London. Everywhere else, central Wales, as far oh, as wow. pricing comparables go. Right? So great. And then we rang a couple of local estate agents and got actual valuations. The land was up for two million quid. Right? We then rang two local estate agents that we know down there and said, what would a four bed house sell in this village tomorrow? Uh, £595,000. Eight four bed houses, 595000 That's what, 4.8 4. million? 
Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They want mm-hmm. $2 million for the land. So you've got to be able to build for $2.8 million and take your profit and the finance costs and everything else. So that's nearly a 40% grab on planning uplift if you give them the 2.2 million quid they want. Wow. Wow. And so there are some like, weird figures going on at the moment. And you said someone would have done that without even getting their hands dirty. Yeah, they, they've, they've, that's exactly what they've done. They've put planning application in, they own the land, they put planning application in, it's an outline, so it's quite a light application to put in. It's quite a, it's comparatively cheaper than a full. Um, and there's still the other bits of the full application to do. So there's still about £60,000 in, in planning and professional fees to throw on that site if someone were to buy it. Wow. No, some real good insight there, John. Really, really good. John, I want to move on to asking you, if somebody's sitting there and they want to try and assess a site themselves, how do they start the process? Is there some kind of telltale things they need to follow or do you know if you've you've seen a plot of land you think oh you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna try and do some research on this if someone was a newbie or someone's you know looking to go down that route is there something that they could do to get themselves started so what we are we've actually tried to help here and what we've done is produced what we call our victory model we're based in portsmouth so of course we were going to name it after nelson's flagship why wouldn't you, right? <laughs> but it works quite well. So victory is a, is, a, is a stepped approach to looking at how you assess an application site or how you, how you start to think about an application site. It's the idea behind it is to try and take away some of the common uh, errors in, in site assessment. So I'll just nip through it, if that's all right with you, James. Yeah, sure, sure. Tell people how it works. And if they want a copy, it's free. There's no sort of tracking on it. They can just go and download a copy from our website. So V in Victory stands for Verify. Is what you're allowed to do in either the National Planning Policy Framework or the local plan. Um, So, for example, Greenbelt would be stopped immediately at the V for Verify um, stage you wouldn't move past v uh, i intelligence is all about the planning history has this been tried before so have you got refusals on the books that you need to deal with just like your house example have you got approvals on the books that, that tell you how to do it and you just need to go and get those approvals back uh, c in victory stands for compare so have a look in the surrounding area are people doing what you want to do. Have they got planning permission? What is the planning uh, personality of that council looking like? If there's a certain form of development they're approving over and over and over again, then do that because that takes away some of the uh, negative decision-making that can affect sites. T stands for team, um, and that's about assembling your power team. Do you have a planner, architect, builder, project manager, or JV partner that you need to take with you on this journey? And, and, and are, they, are their goals aligned with yours? O is about options. Can you do what you want to do under permitted development? How many options are available on the site? Ideally, we always look for three. So 
straight out development, then a compromise scheme that gets you off the land, gets you out of the development, then a, um, a just a refurb and sell. So, for example, one of the developments that we've got at the Mounts in Plymouth, we're working through all three options at the moment. We've got our primary option in, 17 units as a conversion. Then our secondary option is to refurb for assisted living units that don't need planning permission. And our third option is to go for a hall of residence. All three available on the same site. R is reality. What are the site-specific constraints? Are you in an Article 4 area? Is it in a flood zone? Is it a listed building? Is it a conservation area? What is going to really pin you back? And then finally, uh, Y stands for you, because fundamentally, I say this to developers a lot. If you are not passionate about the development you are doing, and this is kind of the cursory to what we were talking about earlier with, with the idea that we get very upset when we're told no, but if you are not passionate about the development that you are doing, then you're not really interested in seeing it through. If it's all about the pounds and pence, not about you, not aligned to your core values, you're not going to be interested in seeing it through. You just want the check at the back end. You don't care what it's going to look like. You'd, and that's going to come through. That's mm. going to come through the design, going to come through the team you assemble, going to come through the unit size and typology. That's how it's all going to work. All the, you know, we saw this whole spate of permitted development solutions for micro flats, which were all about the pounds and pence. It was all about getting the maximum amount of development on a building in order to get the maximum return. Did any of those microflat developments yield a high quality development? No, they're all tiny, nasty little micro units. And are we starting to see the market fight back against them now? Yes, absolutely. Because they're tiny, nasty little micro units. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're gonna just produce something that's boring, non-contentious and uh, all about the money and that will come through when everything is presented to the council wow i love that john i love that and you said that's a free guide on your website that anybody can go ahead Completely and download free. and there's no track importantly all our guides don't have any tracking on them so it's just a case of go to the website go to the download section download them use them enjoy them they're yours wow i reckon your competition are out there downloading them as well well if they do so be it. <laughs> John, something I learned from you on your webinars, I, I realize you're a massive fan of Nimbus and you use that quite a lot when you're doing stuff or you're, you're talking about sites. Can you tell me a little bit more about Nimbus and how it can help people source sites and make decisions or, you know, even, even help them to source HMO sites or not, not so much new build? Or, or how can Nimbus help a developer? So we use Nimbus um, as, a date, as, as it's what it's meant to be, which is a data aggregator tool. What it does is it takes lots of sources of information that you can all get in the surrounding world and aggregates them very quickly and succinctly into one tool. We also, I mean, for absolute transparency, we also work Nim, with Nimbus. We're, one of their, one of, we're on their partnership program and, and, and we do extol the virtues of Nimbus because we like it so much we've used it um, the thing that we find with nimbus is it allows us to very quickly get a handle on what are called the key constraints are we in a, a flood zone 
Are we in a conservation area? Is this a listed building? Is this site in an area of outstanding natural beauty? Is there a triple SI that I need to worry about? Is there a special protection area I need to worry about? So it very quickly allows us to get a handle on that. And then because it links into the planning history, so it goes to go back through that victory model, it deals with the V for us very, very quickly. It then deals with the I for us very quickly, the intelligence part, because it gives us the planning history or gives us certainly in the last five years a standard. And then it deals with the C for us because there's a planning layer in there, which allows us then to look at all the planning applications that are going on in the surrounding area and uh, compare the development we're doing against approvals. So as far as working through the victory model, we find it an excellent tool to help us very quickly assist clients on site. But more importantly, it helps our clients help themselves because we can say to them, go use Nimbus or go use any other tool that's similar. We like Nimbus. Go use Nimbus and go and do the first three stages of victory yourself. Go and do those first three key checks. Get yourself down to T for team and come back to us when you've done that homework because those first three letters should be done by the client. They should be done by um, them because otherwise, how are you ever going to learn the system? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, um, I've, uh, I've played around with Nimbus and uh, like you said, it, it, all the information is out there if you want to spend hours and hours getting it. But what I love about Nimbus when I trialed it for two weeks was exactly what you said. It just pulls everything together Mm. And you can you can switch layers on and you can quickly see what's going on in the area. You know, mm. you can quickly see sites. And I was blown away by it, actually, if I'm, if I'm honest with you. I think it's such a powerful tool that every developer should be using, you know. I mean, just little things. Like I, one evening I just sat there and I, and I mapped out a zone and I just scrolled through. And I'm like, oh, I never spotted that bit of land there. It's mm. got a tiny house there. It's got quite a big footprint. Could I get something there? there? Then, you're dra- then you're dragging along a little bit further and you're thinking, oh, there's another one. There's another one. There's another one. And before you know it, you're then looking at the title for it and you're realizing who the contact person is. And on an evening's work, you could do a direct-to-vendor letter and have a positive response. You know? uh-huh. And I thought that in itself has got to be worth the membership that's charged on it monthly which I think is a very, very fair fee for the features that you get. If I'm yeah, no, I, would, I would agree. Um, I, and, and just to, to throw my own weight in it, I was sitting uh, in um, the villa that Andy and Lloyd have in Bali last year on Nimbus. So I was in another time zone on the other side of the planet on Nimbus. And I was simply, I, I fancy building my house, myself a house in Cornwall. I, I, it's one of my sort of dreams. I would love to build me and my wife, Tanya, who's back there. <laughs> um, she's back in the office as well. It's really lovely. Um, the, I want to build myself and my wife a home in Cornwall. That's where we want to retire to. That's where we want to live. It's an amazing place. And I just spent a little bit of time on Nimbus and I found eight or nine sites ended up writing to three whilst I was in Bali. Uh, granted, bad, bad property developer me. I haven't followed up on any of them because I've been doing other things. I've been double busy, as my dad says. Um, but the, I found those sites. No planning on them. Previously developed land. 
in an area of the country where everyone is building and and the values are stonking. So is it worthwhile? I think so. Can I do it anywhere? Yes. And that, I think, is the power of it. Mm. Mm. No, I totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I say that, you know, there's certain people you meet that are called tight asses that will try and spend all their time going out there and finding the information and waste hours where Nimbus can just go bang and go and get all of it for you. And, uh-huh. and not just go and get all of it for you, it can get so much more for you. I mean, one of the things that really shocked me was when I, I recently bought some la- a house up in the northeast and through the title register, the company that owned it, I was able to click on them and download a CSV of every single property that they own in the country. Nice. And nice I was like, bleeding hell. That, this, 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 how valuable is that data? The scary thing is, because that data is public data, it's, it's in the public domain. Um, that's the data that uh, councils in London are using when they catch you um, operating serviced accommodation outside of the 90-day rule. They then go and get exactly the same piece of data, it will be it from the central government database, and go and find out each and every one of your properties that your company owns, and then they go after each and every one of your properties. It's always nice to know what the government knows. John, before I talk about SA, because that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I just want to quickly ask you, what's been your biggest scheme to date? And likewise, what's been a scheme that's gone through and you've thought, oh, my God, I never in a million years thought that would actually go through. How did that happen? Uh, biggest scheme to date, 242 dwellings in a tower block. Wow. Um, that was That's literally just around the corner from where our offices are here in Portsmouth. It is a prior approval. It was designed specifically for student accommodation. And the um, the... Uh, scheme is being built out right now. Um, they're building a lesser number because the student accommodation market in Portsmouth has changed. So they are uh, building 158 out of those 242 and making the unit sizes bigger in order to make the main market houses. Stunning location. Um, the 242 leaded off into the 158. So uh, works bloody well for where it is. Uh, didn't, wasn't 100% convinced I was going to get it because at the time we were running out of time. So it was a prior approval that I submitted at the point where office to resi was time limited. And we did not know whether the government was going to extend it. And so there was this massive great panic um, right up until the end of that application where, the, where we were thinking, well, they're just going to refuse it. If they would just refuse it, then we're stuffed. They refuse it, we're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> because we have to send it to before the inspector. And if we do that and the, inspe- and the, ca- the government doesn't extend the period of time, then uh, we can't get the approval anyway because we've gone beyond the period of time. That's the end of it. Uh, happily, the council approved it, which was very nice of them. Uh, very, very kind of them indeed. Uh, that was also the one I didn't think I'd get through. I I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it and thought, well, there is justification here. I've got a reason justification. It's fine. But all the council have to do is find me fault on one of them. And I thought they were going to find me fault on highways because I had 242 units, student pods, uh, with a 75 space car park. (laughs) Uh, And the council actually mentioned that, yes, whilst there's this 75 space car park, it's directly opposite one of the city's main train stations and bus stations. And because of those two factors, 
they said, we don't have a problem here. <laughs> we're fine. <laughs> but that's what I thought they were going to have us on, was car parking. Wow. So there must have been some sleepless nights on that one for you, John. Yeah, there, there were. There were. I've got sleepless nights at the moment because, of course, our, our plan of applications <laughs> for our developments are going through. And, and whilst we've had pre-app certainly on one of them, and everything is at the moment lovely with everyone saying, please, let's just get on with this. Um, it's, you, planning is still a gamble. It is still a risk. You still have to accept that uh, at present only 88, well, it's about 87% at the moment, 87 point something or other percent of applications get through um, the planning system. So, and then if you then play those numbers backwards in your head, they get through local planning authority or appeal, which means that some some thirteen uh, percent are refused, and you're always wondering whether or not the application is going to be in that inside that thirteen percent. So um, it's a pretty high target to hit, but it's um, yeah, it gives you sleepless nights. Planning is not good for you. It's not. Oh, mate. I say that. It's worse for you than crack cocaine, heroin, and alcohol. (laughs) Wow. Wow. John, am I right in saying um, you were involved in um, a very nice site? I think it was a, was it a fort or something that you mentioned, I think, in a webinar? We we love hard buildings, let's face it. Our our (laughs) development company loves really complicated buildings. And, the really complicated building that we're working on in, in Pembroke Dock in Wales is a uh, 1800s grade two listed and scheduled ancient monument, uh, a former defensible barracks, which is a fort for all other, uh, other stroke of the imagination. It has a moat. It has uh, gun emplacements. No guns, sadly, but it has gun emplacements. Uh, and everything else you would expect. It, it had a drawbridge at one stage in its life that was replaced by a metal bridge. So, you know, it's got all of the hallmarks of this is a, this is a fort. Um, and, and we're involved, that's one of the developments we're working on, and we're involved in it, and, and it's very much a, a labour of love for that one. Uh, this building has had the crap kick kicked out of it over the last um, 20 or 30 years. And part of the building is, is the internals are in a poor state. So we're working with the council in order to bring that building back into life. Mm-hmm. And how far along are you with that one? Uh, the surveys are all in. We've had our initial discussions with the Welsh government and with local council who are both saying, please sort this building out. Um, it's the Welsh government we have to persuade, uh, Cadw, who are the Welsh version of, of English heritage. Um, they, uh, they are the gatekeepers to the scheduled ancient monument part. Um, happily, when the building's converted to residential, which is our intention, it will become descheduled. You can't have a, a SAM that is a residential building. So it will be descheduled at that point. But they are working with us to bring forward a scheme that everyone can be happy with first time out because there have been a number of attempts on this building uh, to bring forward a scheme that works. And um, those attempts have gone by the wayside now. So we're now looking at trying to do something special once again. 
Okay. Look forward to that. I've, I mean, I've, like I said, I've heard you talk about it on a webinar and I think I heard you talk about it on other podcasts and um, had a quick look on Google Maps. And like you say, it's a stunning, it's a stunning place. It's a beautiful building. Uh, absolutely beautiful. It's, we, we seem to only be attracted to buildings who are absolutely stunning. Um, and, you know, all three development sites have their own beauty uh, to them. Raglan Gatehouse is just as I describe in the heritage assessment. I described Raglan Gatehouse, which is one of the others, as um, the, this building stands alone as the last testament, testament to legacy of the site. And it does. It really does just stand in isolation and alone. Everything else that was part of the former barracks there has been destroyed, knocked down in the 50s, replaced with horrible maisonettes. Um, but this building just literally stands there in splendid isolation, uh, desperately asking people to do something with it. Mm-hmm. Wow. You can really, you can really sense your passion, you know, when you talk about these. I know you say it gives you a lot of sleepless nights, and you know it's 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 worse than a, a drug addiction. But you can sense the passion and the, the love that comes through for these sites when you talk about them. That and that's the important part of the why. Yeah, it's it's the you part. This is completely aligned with what I want to do, you know, as a planner, as a developer, is 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 to bring forward these buildings that would be lost and forgotten. Because at the end of the day, and I love this quote, it was given to us by our architect, we're only ever borrowing them. They're, they're the country's buildings. We're only ever borrowing them for the short period of time. And it is remarkably short in these buildings' lives that um, we have them in order to give them another chance. And we're just borrowing them, them for that brief glimpse of time. If we can be involved in their life, in their history, then fabulous. Wow. Wow. That's such a powerful statement. John, you mentioned something on a podcast that really stood out to me where you said service accommodation is your least favorite strategy. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that because I know you're going to give us a no bullshit response to this. (laughs) Okay. So here's my view. Are we ready? This is where 90% of your podcast listeners think I'm a twat. (laughs) So let's go with it. I'm going to tell you what I think. <laughs> if you go into serviced accommodation blindly and you do not get your systems right and you do not get your planning right, then you are effectively signing up to another job because you're turning yourself from James Sahota into Basil Faulty. that's the thing with serviced accommodation it's sold by the world and there are many uh, people on the internet who will tell you that serviced accommodation is 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 fucking a and and they can make a lot of money from it it's all groovy excellent right and i would agree any hotel makes money if it's set up well, has a great offer in a great location with all the staff and everything else that needs to run a hotel. But if you don't have all those systems in place, if it's just you and it's your first SA unit and you're renting it on Airbnb and you're doing all the bookings yourself, you're effectively Basil Fawlty, but you're also Sybil Fawlty and you're also Manuel. 
if people know the 40 Towers series. Because <laughs> in today's world, the COVID-19, the post-apocalypse that we're in now, and interestingly enough, I don't know if you've noticed the parallel, but our government appear to be using uh, disaster movies and comedy movies as their way of dealing with COVID-19. We went through, right at the start, we went through Zombieland. And then we went through 28 Days Later. And now we're into kind of Judgment Day. Um, but anyway, the ultimate upshot is that in the post-COVID world, the cleaning regimens for these service accommodation units are going to be that much higher. It's a full changeover. You can't just make the bed. Um, the requirements for inboarding and outboarding people are going to be that much higher. Social distancing is going to be with us with for a while yet, even though hotels are going to be allowed to open very shortly or open now. Social distancing is going to be with us for a while. And um, I think if you go to, into SA thinking that it's, not, that it's passive, thinking that you can just fire and forget, whack it on Airbnb and give them the code to the door and away you go, I don't think you've got your head right, personally. Um, I know there are people out there today. I saw a YouTube video by one of them this morning when I fired up YouTube and saw a YouTube video saying, now's the time for serviced accommodation. Get, get your ass into serviced accommodation now. And I'm thinking, oh, dear God, we're just going to have loads of divorces when Sybil hits Basil overhead with a frying pan again. Mate, I'm laughing because a lot of the people doing service accommodation are in their early 20s and they probably haven't got a clue. Half of these characters are. Towers. Faulty Towers is on gold. Uh, many other television stations are available. And you have to do that, by the way, weirdly. You have to do that. Anyway, it's on got UK TV gold. Many other stations are available. Just watch one episode of Faulty Towers and then ask yourself do you want to do that? Oh, mate, I think you're going to have to make a video on this, actually, John, with 40 Towers compared to service accommodation because that's a great comparison, mate. Thank you for that. <laughs> but isn't it true? I mean, I'm sure you've seen it the same as I have, yeah? And the thing is as well, here's, here's the other thing about it. The net is closing on SA. We're seeing more and more and more councils basically say serviced accommodation is not a dwelling. It is not a house. It is something else. We had um, an appeal decision in Cambridge and we're seeing more and more councils declare in line with that position. We're up to about eight of the councils at the moment, including some really perverse ones like Hinckley and Bosworth, which is a council near to Nottingham. Um, they're declaring it's not um, a house because they're having a problem with it. Oxford City Council declared it wasn't a house because... And this might make you laugh. I don't know. Oxford's serviced accommodation problem was caused by pop-up brothels. <laughs> I'm not joking. Well, if you have a look at the reason why um, Oxford have declared a 140-day rule for serviced accommodation. If you use a property for more than 140 days in any calendar year in Oxford, it's serviced accommodation and requires planning permission. The actual committee reasoning was because they were seeing um, properties in streets get rented by 
people who run brothels and on Airbnb and then using the property as a pop-up brothel for a month. And then the moment they started to clamp down, they would literally just Airbnb another property somewhere else in the city. So you would have this migrating pattern of, of, of red light district that was disappear that was moving around the city of Oxford. That's Oxford. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Do you think it's an industry that's due a massive reform then a bit of a shake up? I think it needs to be brought in. Ideally it needs to be brought into the hotels act to okay. be fair. I think, I think we have a whole sequence of acts that govern hotel accommodation. Right. Um, I think it's an industry that needs to be find itself inside of the short-term temporary accommodation acts that we've got. We have good regulation on them. The problem is service accommodation falls into a gray area and that would help planning because planning would then understand what it is. That would help licensing because the licensing would understand what they are. That would help regulation because regulation would understand what it is. At the moment it's such a gray area that it's going to take a, uh, it being brought into mainline, um, mainline legislation for, for it to be essentially um, uh, tidied up is the term I want to use. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, much overdue a bit, of a, a bit of a kicking, to be honest. Uh, a lot of people have been getting away with all kinds of stuff. At, and uh, yeah, like you say, it's, compare it to 40 Towers and you'll, you'll soon stay away from it. Yeah, I mean, a- absolutely. Absolutely. The, the, the thing for me, James, is, is it's an, I, I, and I put it in the article that I wrote on service accommodation. What is service accommodation? It's an American term that's been imported to the UK. So it's an American idea that was tried to be imported into um, our system. And it doesn't translate very well at all. The latest American idea, which you've probably heard about, is this concept of co-living. Mm-hmm. I mean, what the hell is co-living? Is mm-hmm. co-living just another way of saying massive HMO? Or is it something else? But that's an American term that's been imported into our vocabulary without any translation. American doesn't import into, you, into English that well in certain circumstances. And, and this is one of those where you, they say co-living and we have no idea what co-living is. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with you. It's just a, a fancy word for, a, like you say, a big multi-block, isn't it? Or loads of people it's, living together. It, it, is it just a super giant HMO? Mm. You know, is it a 33-bed HMO? We call it co-living because it's fun. And, and it's not HMO. It doesn't have the same connotations as HMO. But does it fall inside the same use class? We simply don't know because there is no definition of what this co-living thing is. Mm-hmm. Same with service accommodation. John, I'm getting towards the end of the podcast. I've got one question for you here. How can, well, I know how your service has, you know, it's really benefited me and, you know, you're firmly on my power list to call when I have a new bit of land that I'm looking at. But how can your services help somebody out there who's looking at a plot of land and thinking, you know what, I don't know if I can personally do this. I don't know if I can go through it. I need a little bit of handhelding. What can they do if they want to contact someone like you and how can someone like you help them? Okay, so we, when looking at pieces of land, we always suggest go planner first anyway, because the planners are the gatekeepers. Architects will tell you how to build it and, and what it will look like, but planners will tell you if you can build it. And it's that if question that's really, really important. So 
I would always suggest go to a planner first, contact uh, even the local council, have pre-app with them, or your local neighbourhood planning consultant. Um, make sure, ideally, if they're, that they're chartered, because the chartered status gives you levels of protection, just like having a chartered, chartered architect gives you a level of protection under the ARB, the Architects Registration Board. Um, having a chartered town planner gives you a level of protection under the, uh, the Royal Town Planning Institute Code of Conduct. So... Um, Absolutely, make sure they're professionally qualified uh, and, and take advice very, very early on. It might cost you a bit of money for that advice, but if it does and it saves you um, a lot of money, then I would absolutely take it. And I'm going to give an example, if I may, as a final example to, to exemplify the point. Uh, a few months ago, I was phoned by a guy who'd gone to auction or oh, it's going to start well when you say the words gone to and auction and he bought a piece of land that he'd seen in the auction book for uh, 50,000 pounds right the auction said prime residential land subject to planning uh, within a residential housing estate city of reading now 50 grand for prime in Reading is dirt cheap, right? If we go back to the victory model just quickly, the V in victory is verify. Verify what you can do, what you want to do, you can do. So if he'd phoned us beforehand, we would have told him not to buy that piece of land at any price. And the reason why is because in the local plan, what do you think this was designated as, James? It's within the housing estate, is it? Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing some kind of park or a playground or... Oh, you're absolutely bang on right. <laughs> it was designated as protected open space under policy as a park, and it actually had a swing set, a slide and a roundabout on it. And he didn't check all this? He went to the auction and got auction-induced Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> you know where you start shouting out mine <laughs> you know, yeah, and yeah. stop bidding um, the problem is he'd gone to an auction 10% deposit and 28 days to complete otherwise you lose deposit and he said well how do I make this development work and our only answer the only answer we could give him was um, remove the old swing set because it looks substandard and put a new swing set on, a new roundabout, and a new, a new slide, and, and give it back to the community. I don't want to do that. It's going to cost me 55 grand to do that. Well, then you need to wave goodbye to your five and a half grand 10% deposit, don't you? Because you can't develop this piece of land in the short to medium term. It's going to need a catastrophic collapse of Reading's housing supply, and there is never going to be a catastrophic collapse of that. Um, for them to allocate the site for housing. So you better say goodbye to that five and a half grand. But that's the example, really. A little bit of fees with a planning consultant before the auction, can I do this, would have saved five and a half grand. And I, we see this all the time. I had a site a few years ago come through me on an inquiry where he'd gone to an auction and spent £120,000 cash on a piece of land 
on the south coast that was designated countryside in a triple SI, in an SPA, in an area of outstanding natural beauty, in a strategic gap, and in flood risk zone three. Chances of building on it, fuck all. <laughs> wow. Literally lost turkey in the shop. And he'd spent £120,000 in cash on it, all because in the auction pack, there was a really pretty architect's picture of 20 houses on the site. Wow. I've seen that done before, actually. Nice little trick, that. Well, not a nice little trick, but... It's you know. always about doing your due diligence, but say 450 quid with us, and that's what we charge for viability, 450 with us to save 120,000. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's like, um, I wish I'd known about your services earlier because it's that like that little plot of land that I showed you at the back of, of the premises that I own. You know, I've spent several thousands of pounds and I made the telltale mistake of getting an architect involved too soon because I found an architect will take it on and they're quite happy to take it on, charge you a four or five grand fee on it. And then just kind of a little bit shaky whether it's going to go through or not. Whereas someone could come through to you, spend four, you know, like four hundred and fifty pounds or whatever it was you quoted us to kind of get some kind of study done on it and give you some kind of peace of mind to think, okay, this might happen or this might not happen. And it just makes absolute sense to do that. Well, yeah, that's what we think anyway. I'm sure others will have their own opinion. And as as you quite rightly said at the beginning, my views are very marmite. Others do disagree with me. But Elevi. <laughs> John, my, last, my last question to you then John if you could go back to when you were 18 what's two pieces of advice you'd give yourself oh people ask me this all the time um, great get into development early get into development a lot earlier when I was 18 you could buy a house in Portsmouth for £58,000 and wow. those houses now are worth about a quarter of a million quid jeez so get into development early. And secondly, specialize the nuts out of what you're doing. So, so focus on a specialist area of practice because if you get really, really good at something, then, then people will um, want to talk to you about what you're doing and why. Uh, and then the final piece of advice I would, I would always give anyone is, is tell people what you are doing. Tell your story. There's a fantastic video, uh, a TED Talk by Dominic Colenso. You can find it on YouTube um, on the power of telling your story. Do not be afraid to tell your story. We're crap at it in Britain. We don't like, we're we're very reserved, stiff upper lip and and all that jazz. Tell your story. You're not selling yourself. You're just telling people what you do. If you give that information, then people will... Um, relate to you and understand you as a person. That's some really sound advice. And you gave us a bonus tip there as well. John, last question. It seems to throw a lot of people. What's one vice or naughty pleasure you just could not live without in your life? (laughs) Oh, um, that's an interesting one. One vice or naughty pleasure. I could not live without beer. I, do you know what? I thought you might say that because I've seen you on webinars drinking those tiny little beers in the past. Beer. Beer. Um, uh, but it, it, Tan, Tan is right, to be fair. It is migrating its way into gin. Um, <laughs> apparently, now I'm 40, I'm old enough to enjoy gin. And 
it's it's moved across into into gin. One of my uh, one of my development passions is to make sure one of our development sites is big enough so that we can have our own gin distillery in it with a nice. gin maker and everything. And if I get my way, there'll be a gin distillery in the fort. So uh, it'll be called Defensible Gin and uh, a premium lifestyle brand. Please drink responsibly. <laughs> Fantastic, John. I really enjoyed that. John, if people want to connect with you or find you, where's the best place to do so? You can find me in the Property Expert Community Group on Facebook. You can find my profile on Facebook as well. Um, you can get me through the Antiguru channel on YouTube. You can find us at any Property Expert Community Live because I host them every single month. And finally, you can always drop us an email, help at tpexpert.org. John, that's been absolutely fantastic. I really enjoyed that. Um, like I said at the beginning, People either love you or they hate you. I'm a massive, massive fan of what you do and I love what you put out there. Thank you so much for joining me on the J2 Hub podcast today. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for tuning in to the J2 Hub podcast with James Sahota. If you like the podcast, feel free to subscribe so you never miss another podcast from James. And if you got value from this podcast, do take the time to leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you consume your podcast content from. And remember, you're never too late to become something you truly want to become.